This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. This morning's scripture reading is from Luke 10, 17 to 24. Be encouraged by the reading of God's word. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, well, welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis Church, and uh, thank you guys for leading us in song. And as always, every Sunday, thank you for being part of the Axis Choir. Um, it's great to hear you all sing. Um, deeply enjoy this. Go ahead and grab a Bible and let's turn to Luke chapter 10. There should be some Bibles close by around the house here under the seats in front of you if you prefer the electronic device and go that route. Find Luke 10. Uh, we are now 48 weeks into our study through this book that we've given ourselves to this year and next year and next year. Uh, and so on. <laughs> uh, we never know where we're going to stop when we start a book study like this because uh, we don't know what all we're getting into. We don't know what's going to happen in the life of our church that's going to alter that passage and the application of its truth and interpretation in, in, given, in any given week. And, um, and so it's, I, I learn along uh, with you all each week as we take whatever's the next passage in front of us. And so this week, uh, we're, we're in the passage that Miss Jessa read. It's a, it's, it's a difficult uh, text. There's some heavy truth there. Um, and uh, anyone, anyone uh, needs help hearing it, knowing it, learning it, preaching it, receiving it. Um, and so uh, we, we have to have God's help, whether we're reading the Bible alone uh, with a cup of coffee tomorrow morning uh, or this afternoon or even now. We have to have God's help. Uh, so before we go any further, let's just pray and acknowledge that and ask him uh, to help us, okay? Uh, Father, Lord, uh, we, we do hope that you, um, Lord, speak to us through your word. These truths, as we just sung, that will echo down into eternity. Uh, these truths that your word tells us never, ever, not one single time, does it ever return void? Does it ever not accomplish what it is that you set it out to accomplish and so, Lord, we, we pray, uh, not, not necessarily asking you to accomplish these things, because that will happen, but, Father, we pray asking that you would allow us to receive these truths, Lord, that you would give us the humility needed um, to be instructed, Lord, not just looking for areas where we agree, but, Lord, help us humble in areas where we feel conviction, where we, where we don't see things uh, the same way as the text 
uh, speaks to us. Lord, give us humility and let us put down our boxing gloves and, and uh, Lord, our, our theological argument and, um, Lord, perhaps the way that we viewed these passages in the past. And, uh, Lord, help us kind of put this down and just simply receive from, from your word. Yet at the same time, protect us from heresy, protect us from, from drifting, protect us from, from misinterpreting and misapplying this text together. Um, Lord, your spirit can do this. Um, I know that you can help us. Um, Lord, we want to know, and more than that, or as much as that anyway, we want to obey. So Lord, help us, humble us, speak to us, move in our hearts today, and somehow use this sermon um, that's been prepared for today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so some context here um, uh, to kind of get us comfortable in the text is a few weeks ago, um, uh, according to the timeline of, of Scripture, and also, I guess, for us as well, a few weeks ago in this story where we are in the middle of, of Luke, uh, Jesus begins to make his way to Jerusalem, and he does so by way of Samaria, the Samaritan Valley, and some uh, Samaritans... Um, that, that he was hoping to stay with and, and be able to teach, they reject him. Uh, so there's this resistance. And Jesus teaches through this, this moment, and then he, he moves along and heads to another village. And then he makes his way toward Jerusalem, uh, and he begins teaching on his way, these followers of his, about the true cost of discipleship, about the high cost of what it means to be a disciple. And then he even gets particular in regards of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. Because there were many, many disciples. That was a, a paradigm and a reality of first century Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus just happened to be one of the rabbis and teachers that had disciples as well. And he was letting them know, this is what it looks like to be one of my disciples. And then following this, Jesus calls not just the 12 that we looked at in chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, but here we see Jesus, this is what we looked at last week, he calls 72 disciples, you see his, his kingdom's expanding here, he, he calls 72 followers and then he sends them out on mission to go ahead of him to make preparations of places and people. Uh, that, that he would then follow behind on his way to Jerusalem. And this is his journey to the cross, okay? So when I say Jerusalem, I mean his crucifixion, right? This is his final journey and entry into the holy city. Now, some would embrace the gospel of the new kingdom that these messengers and these 72 disciples are going to be ministering to, and then others would reject it, okay? It's the same with Jesus. Some embrace and some reject. With his disciples, some embrace, some reject. And so it is true for you, Christian, you disciple, you missionary today, some will embrace uh, your lifestyle, your teaching, your theology, the gospel that you teach, uh, and others will reject it. And so in this, Jesus is very real. He, he's very honest with what it is that he's asking his 72 disciples to do. He's honest about the risk that's involved, and he tells them, we looked at this last week, I'm sending you out as sheep, not amongst cockroaches, right? <laughs> Sheep amongst wolves, okay? So I'm sending you out as the prey, not the predator. This is, this is actual Christian obedience. This is a view, a reality check of, of legit, robust, real Christian obedience, and the same risk is involved today. Um, typically in America, we just get too comfortable with Christianity and lackadaisical in our mission. And so risk, 
for whenever you get on an airplane. Um, risk and mission work in America is not that um, relevant. It should be. It must be if we're being obedient. More on that at a later time. But uh, Christianity is not about trying to be book smart as much as it is about putting into practice and obedience the things that we learn from God's Word, regardless of the risk, obeying regardless of the danger, and regardless of the inconvenience it might be on our lifestyle. Um, so now we're getting to our passage for today. Um, we have the returning of these 72 disciples. He sends them out. We looked at it last week. Now they come back. Okay, so let's look together. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 17. So the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name, like through you and the power that you give. Even the demons listen to us. They submit to us. I mean, this is a huge, huge victorious moment that these disciples get to experience. Of course they return with joy over this. Now be reminded, if you've been with us hanging out in Luke for a bit, you know that in some previous verses, there were disciples who weren't able to cast out demons. And there was some controversy. People were asking Jesus, like, why can't your disciples do this? So in context, of course there's joy. Of course there's elation. Of course there's victory. It worked this time. This is mission success. You ask us, and we failed. You ask us, but now we've, we've actually done this. We've done it the right way. They're so excited that these demons listen to them, that the demons obey them. The power that Jesus has given them is effectual. It's working. Such a huge win. Such a big moment for these men and women. Now let's see how Jesus responds. And he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Not some. I've given you power over all of the enemy and nothing Nothing shall hurt you. You are secure and safe with me and the power that I provide. If you think that's big, you have no idea just the power that you have. You've got much more power than just over the demonic world. You've got power, significant power that comes from me. Nevertheless, verse 20, do not rejoice in this. Don't rejoice in the fact that the spirits are made subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, there's a lot here, okay? There's honestly too much for us to tackle right now. So I want to pick this up in a little bit. Uh, but I want, for now, I want us to continue um, in this passage. I want to consider one more uh, sort of reaction and response that Jesus has, okay? So let's look in verse 21. Uh, shortly after that, in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced. Okay? That's interesting. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, and said, I thank you, Father. That's a beautiful picture of the Trinity there, by the way. You have all three in just a few, ver few words. Um, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Well, the idea is, Father, you, you haven't allowed this salvation through my work, this salvation through the Messiah's work to come through 
um, human wisdom, to come through um, logic or reasoning. You haven't allowed this plan of salvation to come through mere knowledge, but through simple faith and true dependency that's displayed in children towards their parents. I rejoice in this glorious, simple, humble salvation. You see, the main point of using children here is the concept of dependency. Children unashamedly, innocently know that they're dependent uh, to their parents. Daddy, I, I want you to come pray with me before I go to sleep. Mommy, I need a snack. Daddy, can I go play outside? Mommy, my sister kicked me, right? They need justice. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm hungry. When are we going to eat? I'm thirsty. Can you get me some water? Dad, can you help me with this? Mommy, can you fix this for me? This constant pleading and begging and asking and tugging on our coats, the, the children being near us as parents, dependent upon our action for them. This is the way that we come to Jesus. It's simple, humble need and dependency. It's not an isolation. It's not living outside of his power. It's living in light of his power in us through us, and for our good. In verse 22, Jesus continues, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Now this verse is loaded with grace. This verse is a magnificent and glorious verse. It's absolutely blown me away. At first glance, we may think that it doesn't appear too fair. But, but look closer. The first two-thirds of this verse states a fact. And that fact deserves a period before it does the contraction and. What I mean by that is this. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is, except the Son, period. But look at what Jesus says. Essentially, our sin has placed a period there. But Jesus removes that period, and by grace, he adds and. That is remarkable. Y'all, you and I, we don't deserve the and. Okay, we can go home now. That's it. We do not deserve the end for a second. It's amazing how often, if we're honest, we'll push back when we see God being God in our life or in Scripture. You know, like God proving His Godness and doing the things that only He can do, like choosing, determining, adopting, predestining. However, the issue, the, the root issue, I don't, I don't believe it's there. It's not really there with all that. It's, it's not enough struggling with him being sovereign over all things that, that really catches us and gets us hung up. What gets many of us, and I, I want you to humbly extend grace to me and consider this thought, okay? Don't just throw this away and dismiss this, but process this with me. Just hold it for a second. You see, what gets many of us is it's really the issue of our ignorance, regarding our deserved state and status outside of God's saving activity. What I mean by that is really two things. It's us not thinking that we're that bad. It's us thinking that we're not that bad, 
And it's us not realizing just how holy God is, how utterly different and perfect and magnificent He is than we are. But the fact is that there's nothing in us that deserves anything other than death and punishment and separation from joy. Nothing other than hell. I know we don't like to hear that, but that's part of the point. You're not supposed to. What the Bible teaches consistently that you and I, that we're dead in our sin. The New Testament, through Paul, the apostle, writer of 13 books of the New Testament, he actually tells us that we're haters of God. Our spirits are at war with God. There's enmity, there's opposition and hostility between us and God. And if that's true, and this is, again, it's a consistent teaching all throughout the 66 books of the Bible that you're holding, if it's true that you and I, that we are truly dead and haters of God, then we all deserve eternal death. And that, that would be just and right and fair and good. End of story. We're the rebels deserving of punishment. We're the proud thinking that we're better than what we really are. We are the sinners. We're not the perfect. However, God in His grace and His radical mercy, He saves some for His own purposes, not because it makes any sense to us, but according to His plans and His glory. So honestly, what, what trips us up shouldn't be that all aren't going to heaven. And I believe when we understand this more, this is going to make more sense to us. But, but what, should, what should trip us up isn't that we're not all going to be in heaven. Rather, what should trip us up if we're truly aware of our natural, untouched heart is that there's even one person in heaven. That's what should disturb us. We should be blown away and crying out, that's not fair, that's not just. For even one person to be with God in heaven. No one deserves that. No one deserves this. It's radical grace for anyone to hear, for anyone to receive. No one deserves to hear. No one deserves to receive. I know this is difficult to hear. I know it's difficult to receive. And this is a place where we have trouble wrapping our minds around the entire subject. And I'm not going to pretend for one second I know how all this fits together. Be leery of the one who admits that he, he, he does have his mind wrapped around this entirely. But in these places, we're, these are opportunities for us to express and exercise faith and trust and more humble belief in the words of Jesus. And oftentimes, I know when we struggle with God being in control, we do so because of some real pain that we've experienced in our lives. We, we struggle with God being in control and his sovereignty when we... When we uh, uh, put it beside uh, some suffering that we've had to endure through a tragedy where we believe that God should have done something different or where he didn't do anything at all. From our perspective, he, he just kind of tapped out on our life situation there. Because the situation that we've walked through, we no longer believe that God knows what he's doing, that he cares, that he's good, that he knows what's best. It's that moment in your life where you knew that if you were in control, you'd have done things differently. Many people struggle with God's sovereignty because of this personal life experience in which they, they can't reconcile how this certain thing can happen in their life and God still be in control. But I want you to consider that if you reject God's uh, being control over all events in your life, if you're struggling and rejecting His control in that way, then where is your ultimate hope? 
Where's your hope? If you reject that God is, is in control over all events in your life, where's your hope? You see, Christians trust and believe that God is good and that he's great. Even in the midst of suffering. Even in the midst of personal tragedy. Christians are those who hold to the belief that God can somehow not waste their suffering. But it will somehow be used to accomplish a greater good in some way, somehow. And so I would encourage you, if this is your struggle, I encourage you to look toward the cross. If tragedy in your life has caused this conflict of belief to to think of God as good and in control, look to the cross. My struggling and worry friends, look to the cross. It's the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus proves that even the darkest day, the worst day ever, when mankind killed God, that's the worst moment of all time. When, when, when God died on the cross, the darkest day of all time, if God can use that to produce good forever, if God could use that moment to produce not just good, but the greatest good of all time, for all time, then friend, he can use your tragedy. I'm not dismissing your tragedy and saying, get over it, look at how he used this. I'm just saying, let it set in perspective and see that he can redeem things. If he can bring redemption through the death of God, he can bring redemption through your story. Lift your eyes to the cross. So Jesus here is saying that it was God's good pleasure to hide truth from some and reveal it to others. Now, again, at first glance, especially for my friends who've been deeply wounded by Christians here, been deeply wounded by the church, this is just even more fuel for you to view God as arbitrary or unfair. But friends, Scripture reveals that, that God owes man nothing. Nothing that we would want anyway. And God isn't unjust because he hides truth from some while revealing it to others. Hiding things from some is an evidence not of God's uh, justice, but of his judgment. Again, that he extends mercy to, to anyone is amazing. That he extends mercy to those who are inadequate and totally uh, dependent, this is even more incredible. So be careful of thinking, my God can't be a God like that. Because you'll end up creating a God in your own mind that doesn't exist and one that will not save you, that cannot save you. So my hope for all of us, regardless of what it is that we're experiencing or have experienced or even will experience, God help us one day, that we would hear from him and receive him according to his own words and, and would be okay humbly meeting him on his terms. So it's whoever he chooses to reveal it. But he also calls us to come to him. So it's an open invitation. In the mind of God, these things are not in opposition to one another. They're just not. Verse 23, then turning to the disciples, he said privately, this is interesting, privately, uh, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings back in the day desire to see what you see. And they didn't. Oh, how they longed to hear what you hear. And they did not have the privilege of hearing it. 
So in contrast to those who were unbelieving and rejecting the disciples' eyes, their ears were working correctly. They were, like spiritually speaking, they were, they, they, they were hearing Jesus. They were witnessing Jesus, and they believed Jesus. Thousands of people over centuries of time desired for this, hoped for this, longed to see the coming of the kingdom of God ushered through the God-man Messiah, Jesus Christ the Lord. And these disciples witness him, God in the flesh, firsthand. Indeed, they are blessed. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. So I'd like to go back to consider the response that Jesus gave the 72, okay? So he sends them out, and they come back so excited. Like, if the Titans, if you're a Titans fan, and, and we win today against the villain Tom Brady right? Uh, if you're a Patriots fan, it's okay, maybe. Um, but if the Titans win today, right, the Titans fans in the room, all four of us are going to be happy. <laughs> We're going to be so excited. Now imagine something even far greater than this happening, that you're a key component in. Of course there's going to be joy. So capture just a magnificent, joyful experience where you played a key role. Find that in your mind. Sort of, sort of place that moment here. We cast out the demons. You know, it's like disciples are like losing their dignity a little bit. You know, it's like, woohoo! Like, yeah! You know, don't, don't have a reverent view of the disciples, okay? They were so jacked and, and, and pumped over this. And then Jesus looks at them in their joy and elation, in their obedience, and he says to them, look at, back at verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the, that the spirits are, are subject to you, but rejoice in the fact that your names are written in heaven. So this is a very critical time of teaching for Jesus. This is a critical time of learning for the disciples. Perhaps never have there ever been a group of people so happy or a group of people with the greater right to be so happy, so satisfied, so joyful. Yet Jesus sees something in them that disturbs him. And he offers a very stern warning. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, that's certainly a difficult statement. He, he sees their joy. He sees them rejoicing over the success of their mission. I've seen someone remarkably like you before. I saw Satan, that bright and angelic spirit, such a gifted piece of creation. I've seen him fall from the depths because of something similar to this. He uses the case of Satan himself to impress this truth into his disciples. So there must be something of supreme importance. He did not use the analogy of the blind. He used an analogy involving Satan. 
Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, this applies not just to the 72. This applies to all of us. So in the training of these 72, in this moment, we find our training as well. So if it's a danger to these 72, it's a danger to us, one of the greatest dangers to us. Here's what I think it is. It's our fatal tendency to rejoice in the wrong things. It's our fatal tendency to rejoice in the wrong things, to experience them as some sort of functional saviors of our joy. In connection to our spiritual life, in connection to our experience. Here it is, rejoicing in the power that they have over spiritual and demonic spirits. So the truth is equally applicable to any sort of gift, anything given to us by the Lord in our Christian life. Experiences, right? They're given to us by the Lord. There's visions, there's dreams, there's things we've felt, there's things we've heard, there's moments that we've lived. Or natural abilities, things that are given to us by the Lord, the gift of teaching or preaching or the gift of understanding scriptures or the gift of logic, the gift of reasoning, the gift of hospitality, the gift to argue and discover or discern the truth. The danger is to rejoice in these things. God gives these sorts of things, but the danger comes when we rejoice in these things. We can rejoice in all sorts of things in our lives today. The success in our work or our money or how we manage our money, and the list goes on and on. But we've got to be very careful here with this. Now, notice how stern Jesus is with these men. He seemingly just crushes these 72 men and women. It's working. I saw Satan fall from heaven because of something I see in you. Again, this has to be very important to Jesus. Often when we talk to others and they're so very excited, it seems as if nothing can stop them. They've got such momentum in life and their spirits are so high, nothing can slow them down to the point that you're kind of concerned that they're just going like, to just make some haphazard decision out of this sudden joy that they're experiencing. And then just in a moment... The next time we see them, they're down in the dumps. They're solemn. They're quiet. It's often caused by this very thing. This toss to and fro, this unsteadiness in our Christian life and experience, it can often generally and often be traced back to our failure to realize this very thing that Jesus is impressing upon the 72 disciples. So let's take a step back. Let's consider the, the, the essence of this problem that he's presenting. Um, let's, let's look together for the principle for us to apply here from this passage. I, I suggest that it's our tendency to be interested in symptoms rather than diseases or fruit rather than the life that produces the fruit, uh, being focused more on the outward than the inward or the spectacular than the real and solid. I believe this is where the problem is. But notice that Jesus didn't say it's wrong to rejoice in these particular things because a gift given by God to man should cause a man and woman to rejoice. He ought to. I mean, actually, Jesus says you must stop rejoicing over the fact that the spirits are subject, uh, submitting to you, but continue to rejoice that your name is written in heaven. He doesn't tell them to stop rejoicing. He condemns their tendency to continue to rejoice in that particular thing. 
and in rejoicing in, in these particular things continually, they become the great thing in our lives, and that's where they will go wrong. So don't rejoice, don't go on rejoicing in this, rather go on rejoicing that you're a Christian. Embellish that. En enjoy this and continue moving on, but don't let it have your gaze. Keep your gaze on grace. Keep your gaze on the cross. Keep your gaze fixed on being so utterly impressed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that you've been forgiven, that you've been saved by grace. Y'all remember Hebrews 7? You might remember this passage. I know you've heard it before. Not, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day of judgment, he's speaking of, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, understanding him rightly, Lord, Lord, we do, did we not prophesy in your name and do this very thing? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Just because we can participate in the spectacular, just because we can be moved spiritually, it doesn't mean that we're a Christian. It doesn't mean that we're being shaped and changed by the real Jesus. Many on that day will say, I did powerful spiritual things. I planted a church, preached the gospel, people got saved, they got baptized in a horse trough. We lived on mission in Nashville. None of that makes me a Christian. We can celebrate that, but we must continue celebrating in the fact that God saved us. Our focus can't be on the fruit of our obedience but the source of the motive for our obedience. So placing hope in these sorts of things, they, they can't save us. Having supernatural, God-given gifts doesn't mean that you're a Christian. So do you see why Jesus tells us not to place our hope here? In, in these sorts of things, why Jesus tells these 72 disciples to not going on rejoicing in this? Don't rejoice in those things. Those aren't the big things. Place your hope in Jesus and your, and your salvation to God through him. Don't rejoice in the wrong thing. Don't set your hope on things that can, can change and shift and come and go. Don't set your affections on things that can't save you. Rather, set your hope on the thing that is steady. Set your hope on the thing that is constant. Like Hebrews 13 would say, the thing that can't be shaken. Set your hope on that. As Hebrews 6, 19 from our reading this week says, We have Jesus as our sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Set your hope, affection, and joy, and calls for rejoicing and continual rejoicing on that. It's like the person who's, who's only happy, perhaps, when they're looking at sunsets. And the rest of the time, they're Eeyore, doom, and gloom. But, man, you give them a sunset, they're on top of the world. It's like the person who loves to go out to, to eat with, with friends. They love that idea. She's sure she's going to get a delicious meal with friends, but the group decides to go to a restaurant where she doesn't prefer. Or when they're going through the seating, she sees that she's on the outside and not in the middle of the action and conversation, and the rest of the evening we're trying to figure out what's wrong. They've set their affection, their hopes on something that can be changed, that can be altered at any given point. And Jesus is saying, don't do this. I don't want you to be hurt like that. I don't want, your, I don't want your, your joy to shift so quickly. 
Set your affections upon God, upon your great salvation through me. This is steady. It's immovable. It's unchanging. It's constant. Rejoice in this. Go on rejoicing in this. You're just getting started in getting the rejoicing that needs to come from the story of God played out in your life. Rejoice in the grace of God. And this takes not pride, but it takes humility to celebrate the grace of God. But you know, when you get down to it, this is what Christians are. This is who Christians are. This is the definition. A a Christian is one who rejoices that their name is written in heaven. They can't get over it. They just can't get over it. They just keep going on and on and on. That's a Christian. Part of this is because they rejoice in what they are and not what they do. When the Christian focuses on what they are, it puts the emphasis on grace. And grace is ultimately love, and we know that God is love, and we rejoice in the grace of God. When we begin rejoicing in the grace of God and going on to rejoice in the grace of God, we begin to worship. Worship not ourselves, not our things, not our our obedience, but we worship God. Christian, rejoice and set your hope in the fact that your name is written in heaven. Rejoice that come judgment day, your name will be on the list that's free from sin. Rejoice that your sins are forgiven. Rejoice that the separation between you and God has been removed. Rejoice that Jesus loves you. Rejoice that God loves you, that God likes you. (laughs) Rejoice that your name is written in heaven in the ink of Christ's blood that's been written by the hand of God before you were even born, before the foundations of the world were formed so that no eraser can remove it, including your own disobedience, folly, or pride. Rejoice in this. Rejoice that the blood of Jesus Jesus has been shed for you in particular. Rejoice that you are a child of God. Rejoice that he cares for you, that nothing can happen to you apart from God. You're in the hands of the one who controls the world. You're in the hands of the one who can do anything. You're in the hands of the one that can supply all your needs, not according to what you have, but according to his riches that are with him in heaven. Rejoice that you can't mess this up, that you're secure in him forever and always, and nothing can separate you from this. Rejoice in this. Rejoice that you will be in heaven and you'll be with God face to face as he really is. Not like it is today, but face to face. Rejoice in these things. Rejoice in these things. Why are we not interested in these things? You ever wondered that? I mean, the word rejoice is robust. It, like, it's so robust that if we were to truly rejoice, we would embarrass ourselves, okay? You don't have a category for rejoice. Maybe the price is right gives us a category, okay? Maybe, okay? Why don't, why don't we think on these things more? Because we're so often focused on other things. And it gets tricky because we're focused often on other good things. They often have our attention and our affection in a significant way. 
we're often in the middle of rejoicing other things and hoping in them. And Jesus says, shift your focus to God. Shift your focus to me. And so this is what we must do to find joy in our life as Christians. This is what we must do to be happy. So those who don't believe, you will never have reason to truly rejoice and to go on rejoicing. That means it won't wear out, you know. Rejoice in your new car. Talk to me in 20 years. You will not be rejoicing in that car. You'll be damning that car. <laughs> Promise you. Especially if it's a, I'm just kidding. <laughs> a Ford. <clears throat> so I want us to do this together now. Let's decide together to focus and glory and rejoice only in this. Do you rejoice in this? Are you rejoicing in this? Christians do. Christian, if you're not rejoicing in this, the key is repentance. And that's a beautiful term. I know through much of recent modern church, the word, or the word repentance implies a lot of pride by the one speaking it. You need to repent, turn or burn. Man, repent is such an awesome opportunity with loads of humility, not pride. Repentance is turning to Jesus to find what you thought could be found elsewhere. Repentance is rejoicing in Jesus rather than rejoicing in those other things that you thought were worth rejoicing over continually. So you have this opportunity now, sort of a call to attention, to come back. Don't, don't rejoice in these other things. Rejoice in the fact that you've been saved by grace, the grace of God through the activity of Jesus Christ. There is your happiness. It's not really about your marriage. It's not really about your job. Your happiness is found right there. Because those things could change, and you still, believe it or not, you still would not be happy. When you find your satisfaction and joy in Christ, in a relationship with God provided through Jesus, it doesn't matter the other things in your life. It doesn't matter the storm or even the tragedy. There's joy. There's joy. That's the one thing that you have to get right. And then everything else begins to take its own perspective. Okay? So an opportunity that we have to do this, to turn to him, to believe him, to an opportunity to, to exercise faith and trust and belief in him and, and even to repent as, as we come to the Lord's table. It's here that we find something deeply satisfying to rejoice in. So in a moment we're going to come and we're going to take the, the bread and we're going to dip it into the juice or the wine based on your age or conscience and you're going to Take it and taste it. And in doing so, you're not only remembering Jesus and what he did for you, but you're rejoicing in Jesus. And you're telling yourself, this is worth continually rejoicing over. So we're going to do this together today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your help this morning. Thank you for not hiding from, from your power and your sovereignty, but... Lord, letting it be known through your son, Jesus, and his teaching. 
Lord, I pray for the humility, Lord, needed that, that we need to receive this word. And Lord, I don't know how some of this doctrine has, has been misapplied or, or misused uh, that's caused a lot of fear and anxiety or even angst in the hearts of my friends here this morning. I know some of the things that I've experienced that certainly applies. And Lord, for me and for my friends, would you give us the humility needed not to shove this to the side and dismiss it so quickly, but, but Lord, let us this morning and this week and on and on continue to sit in this and sit in this truth and wrestle with it and not just so easily cast it to the side. Lord, help us consider it. Help us think on it, Lord. Help us ponder these things and meditate on these things. And simply because that first check, Lord, it just there's some resistance in our spirit. Lord, help us not do what we do with so many other things that, that doesn't set well and just throw them to the side. Lord, help us stick here with this. Help us embrace this. Lord, I'm not afraid or, or ashamed, Lord, of, of this truth of, of you being God and, and how it plays out in real time in our lives today. I'm not afraid of my friends studying it more or, or having questions about it. And so, so, Lord, I ask that this would continue to happen, Lord, that we would begin to communicate with one another and not just live in a silo, but we would continue to, to live out these, these truths with one another, questioning these things, Lord, working through these things, all with the spirit of humility and, and meekness. Lord, be with those who have gone through intense tragedy, and it's brought about a crisis of belief. And, Lord, they're wavering, they're, they're drifting. Lord, they're on the brink of, of utter soul collapse in their perspective. Lord, would they hear from you this morning, I got gotcha. you, I got gotcha. you. Would they rejoice in the fact that, that no tragedy and cause them to escape your heart. Encourage them this morning. Give them the, the strength to persevere. You promised, you promised to do so. Lord, really the main thing with all of us in this room when it comes to any struggle, honestly, is our pride. We just, we just need to be humble before you. I know so often we feel like we know it all and we, we don't. Lord, give us that reality moment this morning as we come. And let's, in taking communion, Lord, some of us are rejoicing. Others are admitting that we don't know it all and that we want to trust you. And so we're using this communion to symbolize that if you can bring tragedy from the cross, if you can bring joy from that tragic moment and, and good from that tragic moment that we're celebrating here through communion, that by faith we're saying that you can do it in our life today. Whatever the case may be, Lord, would you just humble us and allow us to receive you this morning. Encourage us through this time of repentance and reflection. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.